Good morning, good morning. Man, it's good to see you in the house of the Lord today, 11 a.m. service. Why don't you turn to somebody and say, you're looking good today. You're looking good. Man, something just jumped in the room when we were in worship. How many of you guys felt the presence of the Lord today? Whew. Let's go. So good, so rich. And there's just, I'm just here to tell you today, I'm going to announce this so that it doesn't seem like it's a strange new thing, but as we just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and stirring the waters, uh, there will just be more and more and more of that. And we'll just have to learn how to love it and uh, just get lost in worship and prayer a little bit longer from time to time, okay? It's coming. It's happening. All right, love it. I want to welcome a couple of friends of mine who have traveled a really, really long way to get here. Pastor Jerry and Mary Dalkey from Washington. Would you just lift up your hands? These are good friends of mine. I've known them now 25 years. I believe it's 25 years. I, I, I stopped counting after a while. But uh, he and I have worked together for 15 years training missionaries out of ORU. And he's just been such an incredible strength and support for me during those years, and he is continuing to do that now, and he actually just celebrated 25 years of training missionaries uh, out of ORU. So, Pastor Jerry, man, we honor you, we bless you. Mary, love you so much. So glad to have you in the house. All right, friends, for those of you guys who uh, have not been with us for a while, I want to catch you up to speed on what we've been doing here, and then I want to drop us into the book of Acts and I want us to run and run fast and hard for a few minutes uh, before I take off and go on vacation. All right, so I'm going to just lay it all out. I'm going to give you all everything I got. I'm not going to hold anything back. So come on now. Hey, let's go. So a few weeks ago was Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday we find rooted in Acts chapter 2 where God pours out the Spirit of God on the early church. And the way I like to say this is, in one moment, there were 120 people that were faithfully following Jesus. They were gathering together. They were praying. They were waiting for God to come, and they were not the church in that moment. They were very simply followers of Jesus. They were 120 collective, collective individuals that were faithfully gathering together to pray and wait for this promise and this baptism and this gift called the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And in a moment, the Scripture says suddenly... That room changed suddenly, suddenly. The Spirit of God came into that place, and the very thing that John the Baptist prophesied and that Jesus promised happened. And those 120 individuals turned into the church. The church was born. It was birthed by the power and by the fire of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We know that day is Pentecost Sunday. So until Jesus comes back or God says otherwise, I'm preaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit every Pentecost Sunday. That's just my marching orders. And so from there, we launched into a series on the book of Acts. We've called it very simply the Spirit-filled life. What does it mean to live in the Spirit of God? What does it mean to walk in the Spirit of God? What does it mean to love the person of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to host and inhabit the presence of of the Holy Spirit? What does it look like to do everything that we do by the anointing of the power of the Holy Spirit? So two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit and power, and that he went around doing good works, 
and that everything that Jesus did, it was done by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was utterly dependent on the person and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we found out last week that these early apostles, Peter and John, that they're beginning to demonstrate the power of the kingdom of God because Jesus entrusted them with the power of attorney of the kingdom. It's called his name. The name of Jesus is the power of attorney. The name of Jesus is everything that I have secured by my life and by my death and by my resurrection. I have now entrusted that to my followers to walk in the authority that has been given to them in and through the power of my name. I want to do just a really fun kind of sketch of the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 1. And I'm going to try to do this really quickly because what I want to do is I want to lean in on a very clear word that is just a reminder. It's just a very simple reminder of the words of Jesus today. Acts chapter 1 Jesus has now been resurrected and he shows up to his buddies and spends 40 days discipling them even deeper in the message of the kingdom. Guys, this is incredible. This is one of the best internships that you could have ever signed up for, right? You know, like all the prerequisites were done in those three years, but man, the good stuff Jesus saved for post-resurrection. And for 40 days, he just leans in. And we find in Acts chapter 1, he's teaching them even deeper truths and mysteries about the kingdom of God. I'm so jealous. And then after that, he says, listen, wait for the gift, stay in Jerusalem, and continue to pray. And so this is what we find. After those 40 days of discipleship for 10 concentrated days, the early church is just gathering together. And they're praying and they're praying and they're praying and then boom, Acts chapter two, the power of God is poured out. They're praying in the Holy Ghost. And then Peter stands up and preaches a message and he says, remember Joel chapter two, verse 28? This is that. This is that moment where Joel prophesied and says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will have visions. And we have finally entered into hundreds of years later the fulfillment of what prophets have been speaking of. It's happening. It's now. You're in it. Touch your neighbor and said, it's now. Now that's what Peter did to his crowd. <laughs> and you did it too, and it's amazing. All right, after Peter preaches, 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus. I mean, like signs and wonders and miracles and power and presence and glory, it's happening. Acts chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, it opens up. And in Acts chapter 3, I just alluded to this, but Peter and John are walking by. A guy's asking for money. Peter's like, I ain't got none, but I got something better. Be healed. And the guy was sick, and he was crippled for 40 years of his life. And he rises up, and he's jumping and leaping and dancing and praising God. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John stand before the religious leaders and they're continuing to proclaim the gospel. Salvation is found in nobody else but Jesus. Acts chapter 5. At verse 12, you'll see this little heading. Maybe your Bible says it. My Bible says the apostles heal many. I'm going to read this in verse 12. The apostles perform many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought those who were ill into the streets and laid them on beds and mats 
so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them as he passed by. I just don't know if it gets much better than that. I'm rolling down the street and my shadow falls on somebody and I'm not even aware of it and they're getting healed by the power of God. Guys, this is what's happening. This is our story. This is how the early church began. Acts chapter 6, we find that the church is growing, it's exploding. Look at verse 7 in Acts chapter 6. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I could go on and on. I could go into Acts chapter 8 and talk about Philip going into a city where most of the city was under the spell of this sorcerer, and Philip preaches the gospel, and people are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the whole city comes to know Jesus. This happens again in Ephesus. We could go to Acts chapter 13 and talk about, uh, before we go to Acts chapter 13, we could go to Acts chapter 9 and talk about a guy by the name of Saul who was a murderer and who was running around persecuting Christians. Come on, you guys remember this story? right? This religious leader by the name of Saul is ticked off. Because Jesus is getting all this glory, and he's like, man, these guys are breaking the Jewish legalistic law, and I'm not having it. So he takes it upon himself to go get orders from the ruling authorities and go from town to towns and throw these new followers of Jesus into prison. And some of them, he even gives approval to their death. And in the next chapter, Jesus is like, enough. Shows up visits him, knocks him off of his high horse, literally, pun intended. <laughs> who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you're persecuting. Why is it hard to kick against the goats? Why are you doing this? And in a moment, God transforms a murderer into the greatest minister and missionary that the New Testament's ever seen. I mean, the power of God is just invading the early church. But here's what I want to talk about today, because I think we've done a decent job. We've done a decent job giving appropriate attention to the things that are available for us. And I have this twofold thing inside of me that I'm wrestling against, because part of me, I want us to be aware of what the early church walked in, because that's not relegated to 2,000 years ago. These aren't just good stories. They're not fables. They're not myths. They're not things that we talk about like we talk about like, you know, Little Red Riding Hood or Cinderella, you know. Oh, let me tell you. No, no, this, this is our story, and it's available for us to walk in. That same dimension of kingdom power is available for us. And while we're reading all of these amazing testaments of the power of God, we also find another parallel universe that's operating at the same time. Go back to Acts chapter two. I feel like the heater's on. Can somebody, can somebody help me here, Jonathan or Greg? And no, it's not the fire of the Holy Ghost. It's hot, it's hot. The atmosphere is hot. It's like, it should be set at like 68. It's like 74 right now, I promise you. Okay, Acts chapter two. So let's take a look at, let's take a look at all these different things that are happening at the exact same time that power and glory and deliverance and healing and signs and wonders, here's also what's happening. So Peter stands up and he preaches the gospel. And while he's preaching in Acts chapter 2, verse 13, there's a crowd that's like, you guys are drunk and they're making fun of them. So we think the outpouring of the Holy Spirit 
as all that was taking place and everything was smooth sailing from there. No, there will always be a contingency that will, that will serve as opponents and enemies and mockers to the work of God in your life or in the church or in whatever hour of history that we're in. So in Acts chapter 3, look at point number 2 in Acts chapter 3. These guys heal a guy who's been lame for 40 years and they're thrown in jail because of it. Acts chapter 5, we find that the religious leaders are jealous of Peter and John. So they throw them in jail again, but this time they beat them. So they're literally experiencing pain in their physical body. They're being flogged because of all of these good things that I just rattled off to you. People are getting saved. Sweet. Go to jail. People are getting healed. Awesome. I'm going to beat you. Okay? Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7 go together. But what we find in these verses right here is the first martyr of the New Testament the first person who ends up paying for his faith with his life. That's what a martyr is, a martyr who basically says, Jesus, I am following you until the death. Acts chapter 8, Paul, who was Saul, is going around persecuting the church. In fact, I want to read Acts chapter 8, verse 1. So Saul is standing there, and he approves of the execution of Stephen. Stephen's a young man who at that moment, the only reason that would justify his execution is the fact that he knows his Bible better than the religious leaders. And he says, everything in your Bible is pointing to Jesus, the Messiah. And I've chosen to follow him. And they're like, no, we're gonna get there later. Acts chapter, Acts chapter eight, verse one, and Saul approved of their killing. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And everyone except the apostles were scattered. Verse two, godly men buried Stephen and they mourned deeply, verse three. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and he put them in prison. Acts chapter 12, let's read Acts chapter 12, verse one and two and three. This is another one of those bookend narrative intros that just give you this idea that everything that was happening in these moments of the early church starting wasn't all incredible. There was hardship. There was fierce persecution that was running parallel to amazing displays of God's power. Verse 1, chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. Listen to that language. He arrested them with the intention, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to hurt you because I want to silence you. I'm going to make you pay. You're a disruption. I'm tired of it. And I'm going to make you pay physically. Verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And this is so twisted. Look at verse 3. And when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, in other words, they were happy about it. Like, can you imagine that? I wouldn't be happy if my worst enemy got decapitated. I wouldn't be happy if my worst enemy got thrust through with the sword and there was some twisted ideology that was running along where they were thinking to themselves, it's better that these people die than they corrupt the purity of Judaism. Which should tell you there's something probably wrong with your Judaism if you're happy about the fact that people are dying because of it. 
All right, let's go back to that main uh, slide if we could. James is executed. Acts chapter 12, 1 through 19, Peter's thrown in prison. Again, this is his third time in prison now. In Acts chapter 14, verse 19 through 20, I want to read these verses to you. Paul and his companion Barnabas, they go to these towns and they preach the gospel. And man, they just light the city on fire and people are coming to Jesus. And then this little contingency of Jewish people follow them wherever they go. Can we just pause for a second and just acknowledge how, how annoying that would be? Right? It's like everywhere, it's like if I went on a, you know, a, a preaching tour and everywhere I go, someone is just coming right behind me and undoing everything that I say and just causing trouble. That's what this group does. And look at verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and they won the crowd over and they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Because not everything was amazing in terms of health and wealth and happiness and peace and prosperity and goodness. and No, that's, that's not what was happening. There was this parallel track that almost matched in intensity. So for all of the amazing demonstrations of resurrection spirit power that was going on, the enemy was equally fiercely at work to oppose it. Which reminds me that none of this was new. If you look at the John chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16, what you'll find is one of Jesus' final teachings that he gives to his disciples before he's crucified. John 13 through 17, I'm telling you, is some of the most important things for us to read. Read it over and over and over and over and over and over again. I know a preacher who spent three years on those four chapters because they are so dense. Let me summarize them for you in three points. Number one, in John 13 through 17, here's what Jesus is saying. Love people like I love them. You can only do it by the Holy Spirit. Here's the second thing he said. There is a Holy Spirit and he's coming and you need him, right? Here's the third thing he said. Trouble's coming. Trouble's coming. So in those final moments before Jesus is about to leave, now think about this contextually. On his deathbed, figuratively speaking, he's going to share the most important things to his disciples. Those were the most important things that he felt like he needed to pass on before he left them. Love people like I love them. You need the Holy Spirit. Trouble's coming. Love people like I love them. You need the Holy Spirit. Trouble is coming. So I want to dive in a little bit deeper on a few of these stories. And I want to talk with you today for the next few minutes about the Holy Spirit in times of trouble. This is just a good reminder message. It's a refresher. It's meant to encourage us. There's nothing new that I'm going to share today, but I want to remind you, I feel like there's one person here today that I'm directly and specifically encouraging because you might find yourself in a season of adversity. You might find yourself in a season of grief, sorrow, lament. You might find yourself in a season of betrayal or being unjustly accused. You might find yourself having just heard of a doctor's report that is shaking you to your core. You might find yourself in a season where the doctor's report came 10 years ago and you've still been battling chronic pain and now you're just tired and hopeless. I want to encourage you today that 
as I look at these three stories, I find that there are these patterns that emerge on how the followers of Jesus respond in their season of adversity. Let's go back to Acts chapter 4. Remember, Acts chapter 3, they heal a man. They get thrown into jail because of it. They get interrogated. They get threatened, and they get commanded, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. So here's what happens. Peter and John, Acts chapter 4, verse 23, here's how they respond. Beginning in verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Friends, the first thing that I want to submit to you today is that in seasons of adversity, we need the power of the Spirit to pray. Pray. I told you it's going to be a, just a simple reminder. The reason why I believe that prayer is so important when you find your light being snuffed out is because prayer literally is your lifeline of intimacy and communion and communication with God. Prayer is your lifeline of hearing the voice of God, but prayer is also your lifeline for speaking into and taking authority over the situation that you find yourself in. Prayer is one of the primary weapons that keeps us from being powerless, leaving us victims to circumstance. Jesus never left you a victim to circumstance. He armed you with resources. Prayer being one of the primary ones to enable you to stand in the midst of the darkest seasons of your life. And there's a couple of things here that I think are really, really unique. Let's look at it again. When they heard this, number one, they raised their voices together. Here's what I want to encourage you. When you're going through a dark season, pray together. Pray with someone. Find someone. This is why prayer groups matter. This is why being in good harmony and relationship in your marriage matter. This is why developing trusted confidence and friends matters. This is why investing into relationships so that when they go through a difficult season, you can pray them through. And when you go through a difficult season, they can pray you through. you got to find someone you can touch and agree with. you got to find someone who can link hands and link hearts and link faith with you and say, I'm going to stand in the battle with you in prayer, and I'm going to pray you out of this situation. They raise their voices together. I should have said this is point one, but they raise their voices Right, I believe in contemplative prayer. Do you know what that is? It's where it's kind of really quiet. Most of what I do with God is quiet, but there are times when I need to raise my voice. There are times when God will actually ride on the wind of your voice, where God will use the power of your voice. Do you remember when the, the people of Israel, the children of Israel, were commanded to walk around Jericho? Remember this story? Right? So... For 400 years, the children of Israel are living in slavery. For 40 years after those 400 years, they're in the wilderness. And all of this time, they have a promise. You're going to have a land. You're going to take possession of it. There's promises in God for you. There's victory for you. So now 440 years later, they cross the Jordan. They're stepping into their promised land. And here's the tactical assignment that God gives them. Walk around this wall for seven days. For the first six, don't say anything. On the seventh day, walk around it seven times. The first six times that you walk around it, don't say anything. But on the last time that you walk around it, I want you to blow trumpets, and I want you to scream like you're going crazy. Why is that? Why is that? Because God moves with our voice. Because God uses our voice. 
Friends, there's a reason why they raise their voices together. There are times that you need to get alone with God and you need to pray louder than you usually pray. You need to pray with some desperation, with some fire, with some intensity, with some hunger, right? Like, like your own life depends on it because some of you, your life does depend on it or your marriage depends on it or your healing depends on it or your children depend on it or their future depends on it. And so I'm not gonna pray quiet prayers when I've got souls that are hanging in the balance. I wanna have, I wanna have a house that knows how to raise their voice. Amen? There's power in your voice. There's power in your volume. There's power in your intensity. And the enemy knows it, and God knows it, and it's available for you. They raise their voices together. And this, this is really interesting as, they, as we go on in Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 25. Now they begin quoting scripture. Guys, I'm giving you a strategy here. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And you know what they do? They start quoting scripture. Here's the next way to pray. Pray the word. When you find yourself going through a difficult season of your life, open up that Bible. Get into the Psalms. Identify with the struggle and the pain and the frustration of David and say the very words that David said because he's given you a prayer manual to help you through the very same kinds of situations that he's been through. You don't have to make up your own prayers. Somebody else already made them up for you. I will bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. I'm going to bless your holy name. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned, and he heard my cry. Uh, the Lord lifted me up out of a pit, and he put my feet upon a rock, and he put a praise inside of my mouth. You know what that is? That's me praying the word. Pray the word. That's all these guys are doing right now. They've just been threatened, and they go back, they find a prayer meeting, and they find the Bible, and they go, we need to pray the word. That's awesome. All right, I'm going to preach, preach to who talks to me. Verse 29, now, this is, listen to this. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. This right here blows my mind. They've been threatened. They're on the verge of being flogged. They spent a night in jail. Their master and their savior has just walked through all of this, so they've got a little bit of PTSD going on, right? And here's what they say, bring it. Let's go. Like, that's what they're doing right now. Like, this is what they could pray. This is what I would pray. I would go over to the corner, I'd hold hands with my friends, and I would say, dear God, get us out of here right now. Um, I need you to hide us under the shadow of your wings, make us really invisible. All right, and then um, I need you to get us out of here. Lord, stop this. Stop. That's not what they do. You know what they pray? They pray an impossible prayer. When you get filled with the Spirit, you pray prayers that you wouldn't normally pray because you pray them by your spirit. You don't pray them by your mind. You don't pray them by your emotions. You pray by the Spirit of God. God needed someone to stand up against the spirit of empire and religion and the political spirit of that day, even if it hurt them. And he, they were like, Lord, Consider their threats. Great. Considered. Now enable us to just enable us to speak your word. Y'all thought that was bad? Y'all thought that was bad? Y'all thought I preached then? Y'all thought I preached in the name of Jesus then? Y'all ain't seen nothing yet because the Spirit of God is going to anoint me to preach with even greater power and greater authority and greater conviction and greater passion. That's what they prayed. That's an impossible prayer, but they prayed it by the Spirit of God. 
Don't give up your lifeline in adversity. In fact, this is what you do. Let me just walk you through this. When that spouse cheated on you, when those kids are struggling with their faith, when you got accused at work, when you went into the doctor and they gave you, they told you something that you didn't want to hear, here's what you do. You go and you find your prayer room or you find your prayer group and you lay yourself out before God and you say, Holy Spirit, help me pray. Holy Spirit, empower my prayer life right now. Holy Spirit, resurrect my prayer life. Holy Spirit, anoint my prayer life. Holy Spirit, enable me to pray. Bring scriptures back to my memory and then get back into your Bible and open up your mouth and pray 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 until heaven moves on your behalf. Here's the second thing we see. Let's go to Acts chapter 5 this time. The apostles are not just thrown into jail. They're thrown into jail and they're beat. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 40, here again we find the same, it's the same scenario over and over and over again. God comes, shows up in power. Peter or John preach the gospel or somebody preaches the gospel. The religious rulers get upset with it. They throw them into jail. They interrogate them. They question them. They flog them. And here in Acts chapter 5, verse 40, let's take a look at their response. His speech had persuaded them. They called the apostles in, and they had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Y'all crazy. What is happening here? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. The apostles left the Sanhedrin thanking God, praising God, because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. The second thing I think the Holy Spirit helps us do when we find ourselves in times of adversity, the Holy Spirit will help you rejoice. Because rejoicing in the midst of pain and trial is counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. And it's one of the reasons why it's so powerful. Because when you do the very thing in God that you should really have no reason to be able to do in the natural It confuses the enemy. When you do the very thing in God that you shouldn't be able to do, the enemy is stumped. And not only that, you are declaring to the principalities and the powers that be that God is bigger and that God is greater and that God is going to be the final victor and that everything that God says is going to win in the end. So even if it's not happening now, I can laugh. Even though it's not happening in this moment, I can rejoice because I see what's coming and you think you won, but I serve a God that is bigger than this moment. They rejoiced. I said in the early service, I said that joy and happiness are different. You need to understand they're, they're not the same. Happiness comes from the word happenstance. And so we're happy because something happened that we really liked. And so... If you base your joy on happenstance, you will find yourself constantly fluctuating because life is not stable and life never gives you everything that you always want. It's funny, the other day, Christy and I, we were playing around talking about the lottery and uh, I was like, you know, I'm a little upset that somebody else got that billion dollar lottery, right? And then the next, the immediate thing that went through my mind was, Jade, you probably have no idea all the troubles that would come with that, with that lottery too. The point there being is, very rarely in life is everything just static great. 
And if your joy level is based on what you consider to be great externally, you are always going to fluctuate with what is happening around you. Okay? But you can have a joy in the middle of every situation. You can have a joy that is constant. Joy doesn't mean that you're just, you know, it doesn't mean you're trite. It doesn't mean that you are not in reality. It doesn't mean that you're ignoring pain or struggle or frustration. Here's what I think joy is. I'm just trying to think through this as we were in worship, and three things hit me. Joy is a person. Joy is a person. Joy is the person of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I would venture to say that neither of us, none of us, can experience real, lasting, defining, substantial joy outside of that little circle called the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're always susceptible to happenstance, but in dynamic union with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have a joy that supersedes everything that happens around us. Number two, joy is a perspective. Joy is a perspective. How is it that these guys can rejoice while their physical bodies are bleeding? Because they have a perspective. I came up here and Milan told me, she said, she said, no, she didn't say, she said, Dad. She said, if you, she goes, if you, if you talk about singing and if you talk about praise again, she said, remember to tell them about Micah Stampley. Those of you guys who don't know who Micah Stampley is, he's basically Donnie McClurkin incarnated, but that probably isn't going to help many of you if you don't know who Donnie McClurkin is either. Micah Stampley is a worship, gospel worship leader who lost a child. We didn't know this. So there was a season where we just had Micah Stampley on all the time, and we're just saturating ourselves in Micah Stampley, and Milan goes, what is it about this guy? There's something different on him. And so I just Googled, and I found out, oh, that's why there's something on him. Because he dug a well in the middle of the greatest pain and the most atrocious grief in his life. And he found a way to run into the arms of God when he lost a child. And so God slapped something on him called an anointing and a power and an authenticity and a credibility and a grace. And he purchased that. It's what Hebrews thirteen fifteen calls a sacrifice of praise. Do you know that praising God has nothing to do with how you feel? Do you know that? Do you know that praising God has nothing to do with how good these guys are doing? Do you know that there are commands, multiple commands, upwards of hundreds of commands, they command us to lift up our hands. They command us to clap our hands. They command us to shout. And so I have a lot of sympathy for those of us who grew up in church experiences where we were like those charismatics were of the devil and we have it right and we're just going to sit here and hold our hands down. But I want you to know you are violating the majority of scriptures in the Bible that teach us how to praise. And not only that, you are, you are relinquishing yourself from some of your most formidable weapons in God. Let me walk you through some of this. Go to Acts chapter 16. I could talk with you about Jehoshaphat. I could talk with you about how he sent the praisers out front. We could lean in on the walk around Jericho. But we're just going to go, we're going to stay old, uh, New Testament today. Acts chapter 16. Paul and his traveling companion, a man by the name of Silas, go to a place in Macedonia, Philippi. And they go there because they receive a dream of a man who is saying, hey, will you come and help us? So I want you to see, it again, the parallel track. Paul gets a vision, something that we might put in the category of charismatic. 
spirit. Oh, he got a vision. And in this vision, this man is saying, will you please come? A vision of a man from Troas saying, we need you. We need the kingdom of God. We need the gospel. And Paul discerns immediately, this is where we're supposed to go. Pulls his traveling companions together, and they go. As soon as he enters into town, he runs into a young gal who is bound by demons. She's possessed by demonic spirits that give her the ability to predict the future. It's what a lot of people go to in astrologers and psychics and those things. They're operating by real demonic spirits that give them a measure, a measure of knowledge on current and forthcoming events. Paul discerns this by the Spirit and realizes that this gal, she's bound, and he sets her free by the power of the name of Jesus. But she belongs to a a couple of men that are literally prostituting her gift for money. That's the spirit of human trafficking. The spirit of human trafficking is human oppression for economic gain and power. And it goes all the way back to Acts chapter 16. And so Paul sets her free, and here's how God blesses him. He throws him in jail. Like, I just, you got to see the parallel track here. So Paul and Silas are thrown into prison, and in Acts chapter 16, look what happens here at verse 25. At about midnight, so they were in there for a while, Paul and Silas were praying, that was our first point, and singing hymns to God. That's our second point. And here's what I want you to see right here. The other prisoners were listening to them. What's the implication of that? They were doing it out loud. They were doing it out loud. Paul and Silas weren't coming here like, hey, Citralis, let's, let's, let's sing some hymns. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. They were singing. They were singing from their gut. They were singing out of humble hunger and desperation. And here's what happens because God inhabits the praises of his people. Here's what happens when we praise God with our mouth and with the parts of our body, when we lift up our hands, when we exalt him, when we lift up a sacrifice of praise, God draws near. And God demonstrates his power over those things that we're, that we're up against. And there are some There are some situations, listen to me, you guys have to understand this. There are some situations in your life that the only thing that will help give you deliverance is praise. Friends, you have to understand this. We have to understand that the majority of what we call spiritual disciplines, they are formational. Yes, but there's also, there is a warfare or missional dynamic to the disciplines, And so some of us are going up against difficult situations where we need a breakthrough. We need deliverance. We need the power of God to come in and open up prison doors for us, literally or figuratively, in our finances, in our passion, in our marriage, in in all of these things. And here's what we do. Because it's all we know, we go and we just read the Bible. But friends, this is one weapon and an entire artillery that God has made available for your victory and your power in life. You've got to learn how to praise. It is critical. You have got to learn. And if you don't know how to do it, we'll start doing it on Wednesday nights. But let me, t- let me tell you how I do it. I get the most just rambunctious gospel praise Spotify list that I can think of. I turn it up loud so that it's louder than me. And then I just try to match it in its intensity. And I walk back and forth and I just lift up my voice as loud as I possibly can until it lifts. You've got to learn how to do that. It's critical. It's critical to your victory. 
running out of time. Let me go to the next point. Acts chapter 7. Go with me to Acts chapter 7, verse 54. I want to talk with you again about this man, Stephen, who up until a chapter prior was just a faithful follower of Jesus. He's a waiter. He's been faithfully serving the people of God, coming to the time of prayer, being a faithful pillar, known, known. Acts chapter 6 says, find seven men from among you who are known. Their character and their reputation speak for itself, and I want people that are known to be full of the Spirit and full of faith and full of wisdom, and Stephen is listed in that group of guys that's just known. Prior to that, we would have never heard the name of Stephen. He was just quiet showing up every time the doors were open, doing whatever was asked of him, taking initiative and doing it with a great attitude and a great heart. And the apostle says, we want you to go serve tables. Thanks. Is this a reward for being faithful? Okay, whatever. The next chapter, he finds himself standing in front of the same group of religious leaders and he's lied about. They, get, they gather a bunch of people to lie about Stephen. And so now Stephen has to stand trial and give defense of his faith in Jesus. And here's how this ends. He knows the Bible better than they do. He points to Jesus the entire time. He calls them out and confronts them for being hard-hearted, and this is what they do in verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. This is a spirit of rage. It's demonic. This isn't just some, oh, we don't like that. Like being agitated in your soul doesn't lead you to bum rush somebody, drag them out of the city and kill them. That is a demonic, political, religious spirit that's operating right there. They gnash their teeth at them, verse 55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, underline that in your Bible. There's a reason why it's there. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. He looks up to heaven. He sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. And he says, look. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and they yelled at the top of their voices and they bum-rushed him and they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prays. How? Because he's full of the Spirit. Because he's full of the Spirit. When you're going through the darkest, most difficult, most painful season of your life, how do you pray? you got to stay full of the Spirit. Jesus, fill me with your Spirit. Look at verse 50. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out. And this right here, this is what gets me. Okay, it's one thing that you prayed, but then what you prayed. He says, Lord Jesus, don't hold this against them. Do you know what Stephen says while he is in the middle of dying? Like rocks. Somehow, somewhere, some way, in between all of these rocks coming, he just, he musters up enough strength in his lungs and he breathes out in the same way that Jesus breathes out on the cross. Father, forgive them. And I have no idea what they're doing. And it's over. And here's my last point. Friends, the Spirit of God will give you power to forgive your enemies. The Spirit of God will give you power to forgive those who unjustly accuse you, who unjustly betray you, who unjustly leave you, 
the people that you thought were your rider dies until Jesus came back. And before you know it, they're the ones that are running around trashing your name around town. And Jesus will give you power to forgive them. The people that violated you and then blamed it on you. The people that victimized you and then turned themselves into victims, Jesus will give you power to forgive them. Jesus will give you power to forgive spouses that stood before you and looked at you and says, I'll always love you and I'll always protect, on, protect you. And they found themselves hurting you or cheating you. And God will give you power to forgive even them. Because here's the, here's the strategy of the enemy. The strategy of the enemy is to lock you, just lock you up in bitterness and resentment and def- defending yourself and in rehearsing those moments of what they did against you that you don't even have the mental or the emotional power to pray or rejoice or forgive. And those three things are the things that I find in the New Testament church are vital for you standing in the middle of persecution and pain. Stand with me to your feet this morning, church. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on, praise the Lord today, church. Praise him. Oh, we bless you. As our altar workers are coming forward to serve the table to you and as Seth is coming to the keys, I want to pray for those of you who feel like you're in that season right now. A season of betrayal, a season of grief, a season of persecution for your faith, a season of loss. A season where maybe just things don't seem like they're coming together. Seems like everything's falling apart. And if that's you, I just want to invite you to raise your hand because I want to pray for you today. Can I pray for you? Just throw your hands up. Everybody, just look around this room. Pay attention to who you're standing next to. Let the Spirit of God shine His light on someone around you. All right, if you're not raising your hand, it means that you're called to pray for somebody. You're called to see them. In the name of Jesus. I want to pray great grace upon you, friend. I pray that the Spirit of God Himself would visit you, would remind you, would fill you, would empower you, would give you the ability to pray, would put words in your mouth, would baptize you in the Spirit so that you can pray in another language. I pray that the Holy Spirit strengthen you, strengthen your faith, give you resilience and tenacity and perseverance that are beyond yourself. That the Spirit of God would remind you of His faithfulness to you over the years. That the Spirit of God would cause a promise to bubble up inside of you, that the Spirit of God would give you perspective, that he would return joy back to you even in the middle of your suffering and in the middle of your struggle, that God would give you joy. In the name of Jesus, those of you who are standing here today that you've been betrayed, those of you who are standing here today and someone has violated you, someone has victimized you, someone who has attacked you, someone who has broken trust, I pray that the power of God would help you forgive and release them to cancel every debt. Right now, by the power of God's Spirit, I pray right now that a spirit of forgiveness would flow, that a spirit of release would flow. We cancel every debt right now. Father, we pray for faith to rise so that we can say yes to the invitation to forgive. Just say this with me if you would. I forgive you in Jesus' name. You know who it is and you know exactly what they did. 
and the Lord will give you more revelation on how to do this. There's great tools out there. But right now, let's shoot that first shot across the bow. I release you. I release you. I don't hold you anymore. You are not my prisoner. I don't hold you in debt. I forgive you. I break your power over my life. I repent of resentment. I repent of bitterness. And I release forgiveness to you in the name of Jesus. So, Father, right now I pray that you would drop a praise inside of our belly that goes beyond circumstances and situations, God, that you drop a praise inside of us that is stabilizing, that is enduring, that is steadfast like you are steadfast. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd fill us again. Hey, God, fill us again. Fill us again. Fill us again. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Word of God. Be filled with His praise on your lips. Be filled with the power of the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I want to invite you to come to the table of the Lord. Receive the pronouncement of this bread that has become the body of Christ to us. This cup that has become unto us grace and the blood of Jesus shed for us. And Pastor Jonathan will lead us to all partake in our seats.